you are listening to the Spiritual Warrior Coach with Barbara Sabin, the podcast for discovering how powerful your wisdom, compassion, and courage is. Get ready to join Barbara and her guests as they explore and offer you advice on how to reclaim your power, your energy, and your authentic self. And now, here's the host of the show, Barbara Sabin. Well, thank you for joining me today, and welcome to the Spiritual Warrior Coach Podcast. I'm your host, Barbara Sabin, and I am here to help you reclaim your power, your energy, and your authentic self. I am a certified clinical medical hypnotherapist, Reiki master, and teacher, energy healing specialist, life coach, and best-selling author of Gentle Energy Touch, The Beginner's Guide to Hands-On Healing. You know, I have been helping my clients for over 35 years, and the older I get, hmm, the more wisdom seems to come through. So isn't it time that you believe in yourself? You know, your mind is going to provide you with your greatest challenges in life because it's so very, very powerful. So let's use that mind for positive thinking, creating harmony, balance, peace, love, happiness, and anything else that your heart desires. Because one day, the world will tap you on your shoulder and say, this is your time to shine. And speaking about shining, I'm going to bring my guest on right now, David Page. David, how are you today? I'm fine. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Well, let me tell my listeners a little bit about you. Please. Two-time Emmy winner, David Page, changed the world of food television by creating, developing, and executive producing the groundbreaking show Diners, Divins, and Dives. Before that, as a network news producer based in London, Frankfurt, and Budapest, he traveled to Europe, Africa, and the Middle East doing two things covering some of the biggest stories in the world and developing a passion for some of the world's most incredible food. And David is the author of Food Americana, is the inside story of how Americans have formed a national cuisine from a world of flavors, from bagels and lox to sushi, to tacos, to pizza, and so on and so on. And how that process continues every day. And each of his chapters concludes with a classic recipe. And the book includes conversations with some of the most significant people in food. So welcome, David. How are you today? <laughs> I'm wonderful. Thank you again for having me. I'm looking oh, forward to our chat. I do too. Let me tell you, you know, I, I know this is a spiritual show, but everyone, I mean, we all eat food. So that's why I figured, let me have and you on it, and talk about this. And if we appreciate food for what it ought to be, there is a soul sustaining element to it. Um, huh. We as a culture tend to grab and run and, and, and not pay a whole lot of attention to what we're eating. And I'm not talking about buzzwords like organic or natural, which means nothing. I'm talking about taking the time to let food really nurture you to, to enjoy the experience of both making it and more importantly, of sharing it with other people. I mean, one of the things I found when I was overseas and I, uh, do we still use that term anymore? Or is it when I was posted internationally? Um, I, I went over there without a whole lot of knowledge base of the rest of the world. Cause I had, I was as xenophobic as any American. I'd never expected to get an international posting. And suddenly I'm going from country. I know, I know nothing about the country. I know nothing about it. And I realized pretty quickly that, that food is a gateway to cultures that sitting around with people from someplace else and eating their food and discussing it with them and jumping off from that conversation into um, any number of others is yeah. a, a great way to find out about the world and B is very soul satisfying. I mean, the word Epicurean derives from the Greek philosopher Epicurus, who, who was quoted once wrote that, that when you decide to eat, the first thing you need yeah. to decide is who you're going to eat with. 
because eating by yourself is like being a wolf. The concept of, of social interaction and taking the time to look around and, and enjoy things or, or frankly using the opportunity to try to mull over things that aren't going well um, is all an essential element of cuisine. Uh, it's amazing because um, many, many years ago, uh, one of my friends who's uh, from another country, I went to her home to eat and we sat on the floor and we ate Japanese food. And I was just of, of something I've never done before. And it it was a, a different feeling um, sitting on the floor, eating, enjoying everything that she's made, you know, that she's learned from her country. And yeah. it was um, it was an incredible experience. Well, there's a sense of sharing, too. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I remember. Um, Years ago, I was uh, covering uh, violence in the Middle East, and uh, I went to the West Bank, I think to Ramallah, and I had an Israeli crew with me. Uh, I was with NBC at the time, and we wanted to interview people. These were Palestinians, and we saw a family. We stopped to talk to them. Now, this was Ramadan. They could not eat till sundown. Yet they insisted we come into their house and they prepared food for us that they could not eat at that hour. That's the kind of binding, tying together that, that food can bring. It's an, it, it, that must have been a very nice experience for you. It was. And, and to be quite honest, the Israeli crew is uncomfortable. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> sure. Their, their encounters, uh -huh. especially as a TV crew, Mm -hmm. um, their encounters with Palestinians were generally around um, uh, deep division, anger, and violence. So it was a very interesting um, opportunity uh, for them to to spend some time with a Palestinian family in their home. How did they feel about it? You know, conflicted. conflicted. Well, yeah, 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 that's why I figured they would have not 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 too sure which way to go. Should we yeah, enjoy they were them conflicted. and? Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you, um, I mean, here in America, oh, my God, uh, it, it's incredible how many fast food restaurants there are. Yeah. And I, you know, where we live, it's uh, pretty commercial a few blocks away. And of course, there's Starbucks, McDonald's, Wendy's. And it amazes me how many lines uh, of course, it's, you know, um, uh, people yeah. are a little lazy and they're, you know, uh, fast food, you know, order on, uh, you know, uh, takeout. Uh, it, it amazes me how many Americans eat fast food. Well, look, th this was, you can trace this back for the most part. I mean, there's an antecedent as far back as the 1800s with the emergence of the lunch wagon that turned into the <laughs> diner. Buffy, we're doing a, a chat here. You can't bark. Um, you have to excuse Buffy. She she Hi. likes it when I talk about food. Um, if, the fast food revolution began post-war, post-World War II, with um, a sense of economic prosperity in the country, people buying cars, and Eisenhower developing the interstate highway system, and people being even subsidized post-service in World War II through VHA loans, we became a far more suburban, far more car-oriented culture. Um, in response to our mobility, driving to the office now, um, that, that begat the glut of fast food restaurants um, that we now take for granted to the point that, you know, a few years ago, um, there was a minivan produced, I believe it holds the record, that had 19 cup holders in it. You know, we, we eat on the go. We, we eat on the move. Now, we've infiltrated Europe and the rest of the world with, with that ethos, although still today in France, um, the generally accepted way to live is not to grab lunch and go. It is to sit down and have a meal. Uh, and that is reflective, as food is reflective of societies. 
it is reflective of the entire French work-life balance attitude. Um, and there's a couple of other things. I mean, look, um, poverty and inequality actually play a large part here because in um, poorer neighborhoods where uh, you often have what's referred to as a food desert, literally large companies that don't wish to do a lot of business there, the um, the most available and cheapest food tends to be a dollar hamburger at McDonald's. So you you have families subsisting on what one would consider to be a less than perfect diet. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with fast food from time to time. I, I believe there is better fast food. I'd much rather have an In-N-Out burger. You lucky Californians get to have that than I would something from McDonald's because um, it's closer to real food. At least it was cooked when I ordered it as opposed to um, sitting there waiting and degrading. Um, and from time to time as some sort of salt and fat treat, knock yourself out, have a quarter pounder, have the large fries. I would not recommend it all the time. Um, where, where it where it really troubles me, and I don't know why I focus in on this so much, is I hate what's happened to breakfast. My daughter was graduating, he said proudly, from Columbia University as an undergrad, where she then went on to get her MFA, he said proudly, which is why I need to sell a lot of books because uh, they don't give away a lot of uh, free time at Columbia. Anyway, on the day of graduation, I was deputized by the family, as in ordered by my wife, to go across the street and get some breakfast sandwiches. Now, in New York City, the breakfast sandwich is a thing of beauty. In California, um, I know you, you guys, at least in Northern California, love your breakfast burritos. Um, every, every part of the country has its breakfast food. But in New York, a, a bacon, egg, and cheese on a roll not a bagel, damn it. You don't put bacon, egg, and cheese. A lot of people do, but that's a misuse of a bagel. Anyway, the bagel, egg, and cheese is the thing of beauty. So I crossed the street from Columbia, and there is um, this massive line of people, clearly from the graduation, lined up to get their breakfasts. Um, and the place they were lined up at was Starbucks, which at best serves these pseudo-microwave balls of plastic that they pass off as something called egg bites next door there was no line now, next door was a bodega you're from new york you know what a bodega is it is a convenience store that predates 7-eleven and such it's a little privately owned mom and pop where in most cases there's some guy in the morning standing behind a grill making fresh breakfast sandwiches cracking the egg in front of you. He's made a million of these. The grill is seasoned. The roll is a great New York Kaiser roll. It's fresh. He makes the bacon crisp. There was no one in that line. That's where I got our breakfast. And as I walked out, I thought to myself, what are these morons doing next door? Why won't, you know, it, we're, we're so conditioned in some respects to go for brand names. I guess if you buy a coach bag, you, you, you eat at Starbucks. It, it amazes me sometimes. I look at the lines and I say, wow, uh, what what are you doing? I, and, and Starbucks is, I, I'm not a fan of Starbucks. Well, I don't like their coffee anyway. Yeah, I, I they like deny the it, but I happen to uh -huh. believe, and this is going to be in my next book, that they in fact do buy inferior beans and invented this burning process and mm. convinced Americans that that is how coffee should taste and it's not no it's uh, it, it it makes the hair and anywhere stand up i mean it, it it's it's harsh coffee but yeah, it is. uh um i i know like dunkin donuts coffee is a lot different dunkin well i liked dunkin i still like dunkin donuts coffee mm -hmm. but i was a journalist for many years like 40 or 50 and it several points in my career, I was an investigative reporter, which meant I talked to cops a lot. In the old days, the only place open 24 hours where you could meet a cop was Dunkin' Donuts. So I, I'm a fan of Dunkin' Donuts. I'm, I'm a fan of everyday coffee. I'm a fan of um, what would be called gourmet coffee if I feel like it, but I, I drink a lot of iced coffee every day and it's not the world's best.
But yeah, I, I, I'm I'm not a coffee drinker, but I do drink two two cups in the morning. And then, I, by then the way, you drink. you know what Dunkin' Donuts is? Oh yeah. Given the homo- no, I'm going to add something. I don't know if oh. you know. Unless you read my book, given the homogenization of cuisines in this country, Dunkin' Donuts is the largest single seller of bagels in the United States. Oh, now it's a lousy bagel. It bears very little resemblance to a good New York bagel, but Mm -hmm. they are the number one seller of bagels in America. Well, it's probably a little better than what some of these other places offer you, so... It, you know, look, there, there's been a, gro- there's a growing artisanal bagel mm-hmm. movement that I'm yeah. glad to see. You're getting bagels more like you get them in New York, hand, yeah. handmade. Buffy, you got to cut it out. Handmade, boiled before baking. Um, yeah. You know, what changed all of that, but what yeah. introduced the bagel to the rest of the country was uh, the invention of the automatic bagel making machine which was then leased by three brothers, you'll know the last name, the Linder brothers in New Haven, who using that machine and and the overall mechanical process ended up producing a softer, sweeter bagel that they then mated with another new technology, freezing, to start sending bagels to parts of the country that had never seen one. And that's what started the what Marvin Lender, I spoke to him on the phone. He's a really terrific guy. He's in his 80s, the last remaining brother. Marvin called it the bagelization of America. Um, and he said, look, these aren't New York bagels. A, no, we, we couldn't sell New York bagels in the middle of the country. And B, anytime you automate uh, or oh. you go to large scale production, you're going to change the product. Um, Why do you think, a, a, I mean, there's nothing like a Brooklyn bagel. Yeah, but um, not everyone's going to agree with you. And remember, there are large parts of the country where the standard was a much softer bread item, Mm -hmm. be it a roll or or, uh, let's get extremely obscene here, Wonder Bread. Um, So not everyone's going to like a real good New York bagel, although personally I'm a Bialy fan. Oh, I love Bialy's also, but again, from, from Brooklyn. It, well, no, hold on, my taste. dear. My grandfather lived on the Lower East Side of New York. He used to take me ah. to Co-Stars, which uh, mm-hmm. was one of the oldest Bialy. And for those who don't know, Bialy is kind of like a bagel, but like it's bagel. not boiled. And it's only yeah. got a hole on top, not the bottom. And it's got some onions in the middle. And it's wonderful. And I prefer it. But there you go. It's delicious. It's it's absolutely delicious. I mean, I I I look back and I say, wow, I miss my, I miss my Chinese food. I miss my pizza. wait 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 in California. You can come on. You can get Chinese food in California. Yeah, but it's not like it's not like back east. Yeah, but I remember mean, what okay. and what you're talking about mm-hmm. is a unique cuisine of its own that's Chinese American. Mm-hmm. Um very different in many respects than what's actually eaten in China, which spurs the whole authenticity debate. But I believe that Chinese American distinct from Chinese is a terrific cuisine. And, uh, you know, uh, how do you do better than um, General Chow's chicken, which bears almost no resemblance to the way it was originally created in Taiwan. Well, we have here a lot of Panda Express, I think it is. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting because Chinese food came to America through California. Oh, you're kidding me. No, it was uh, it was the gold rush, the California gold rush in the mid 1800s. A large number of Chinese men came to Northern California to search for gold. And with them came a number of Chinese storekeepers and restaurateurs who created places Uh, to support the miners lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And it was at these Chinese restaurants that um, some uh, more adventurous non-Chinese miners started trying the food, which taught the restaurant tours, what Americans would eat, what they wouldn't eat, which was a lot of stuff. um, Cause that cuisine as as are many um, makes use of all parts of the animal. Anyway, that's what resulted in chop suey, 
which some oh. claim was invented here and is a fraud. Others claim was a variation here on a dish in China, which used offal and entrails with the vegetables in place of um, uh, the, the pork, chicken, or beef that we became used to here. And it was chop suey that spread across the country as the first Chinese dish oh, um, publicized heavily during the visit of a Chinese official to New York City in, I believe, the 1800s, might have been the early 1900s. Um, and chop suey became the thing. There's still in the book, I, I profile a restaurant in Butte, Montana, which still serves chop suey the way it did 100 years ago when the place was open. Well, you know, I, like over here in California, um, lo mein is called charming. And yeah, but no, lo mein on the East Coast is, is, like thin spaghetti, whereas right. chow mein originally mm -hmm. was chop suey on hard noodles. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it, 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 um, yeah, the food here is, is different. Uh, some of the Mexican restaurants are very, very good. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, are very good here in California. However, pizza is, um, no, uh, no, 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 no. How far <laughs> are you from San Francisco? You're like 500 miles. Oh, we're far. Yeah. Yeah. Tony, we're Tony like Gemignani. Tony oh, well, Gemignani okay. runs um, mm -hmm. a number of pizzerias in, in San Francisco. He's one of the leading figures in the American pizza world. I actually went, it was his um, pizza school that I attended for a few days for the book. And uh, that's some of the best pizza I've ever had. That, that's extraordinary pizza. Ah, so maybe when I travel to San Francisco one day. Oh, you I have, have to. to. No, you, you, pizza. you want uh, Tony's Pizza Napolitano is his flagship. That's where you want to go. So he makes tell, him I, tell him I said hi. That, that David Page said hi. I will, yeah. believe okay. me. <laughs> yeah, here, well, I'm in Southern California. So it's, um, they, they attempt to make good pizza, but it, for some reason, it just isn't. So I don't know if maybe it's a different type of water that they use or sauce. It's, or there, there's so much. Whatever. There's mm -hmm. so much chemistry in the making of pizza. That that's the thing that shocked me the most when I when I went to Tony's school. The protein percentage of the wheat, the the proof time, the amount of water. It is complicated as hell to do right. Oh, and one of the other problems is certain pizzas need to be made in certain ovens at certain temperatures. And these days, as the general knowledge of pizza um, across America is broader to the extent that people know the names of different kinds of pizza, you have pizzerias with one kind of oven making a vast variety of pizzas, not all of which can be made in that kind of oven or should be made in that kind of uh -huh. oven. Yeah, I'm still craving for a good, uh, well, back east, we used to call it the Sicilian slice. The Sicilian slice? Mm-hmm. The thick you know, square one? The square, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I, I like, I prefer the uh, standard New York fold-over slice. Oh, yeah. I love those yeah. also. But uh, yeah, here, uh, they're, uh, they they look at me when I mention that. As it you know, <laughs> there's actually uh -huh. something that's become kind of hip in the last few years called Detroit style, which is similar to what you're looking for. A lot of yeah. places are now doing Detroit style. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we're waiting for some new restaurants to open here, and hopefully one will be a good pizzeria. But okay. uh, so uh, well, let me ask you, why, why do why do unhealthy uh, foods still dominate the American diet? Well, uh, first of all, they taste good. Um, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. Secondly, define unhealthy. Is pork unhealthy? It's a relatively low-fat meat that got a bad rap. Mm -hmm. um, so I presume you're talking about high calorie fast foods and that sort of yes. thing. Yeah. We're addicted at this point as a culture to fat and salt and sugar. But mm -hmm. uh, I believe that um, physically we have a lot of people hooked on that. Uh, it tastes good. It's um, we're prone to excess in this country. Um, the concept of getting a lot, you know, supersize me. Uh, and so, and it's easy, it's quick. You can eat it in the car. 
secondly, uh, most Americans are not raised with an appreciation for things like vegetables. They're, they're, they're uh, a sorry afterthought as opposed to a potentially integral part of a, of a meal or even a meal by itself. Uh, it just doesn't happen. No. Um, so, you know, we, we eat what we eat. Yeah, I love just, if it was up to me, I would just have vegetables and salad. Yeah, but, but you got to be careful with that yeah. because oh, I know um, the protein. And you have to work on getting protein. You, you have to eat, you know, beans and other, pardon me, other such um, vegetables that round out your nutritional needs, which is certainly possible. Um, you know, what I don't like is people who declare themselves vegetarian or, or vegan and then pine for the things that they declared they couldn't have. And then they eat like fake meat. If you want meat, eat meat. Just eat meat. If you don't, don't. Then just don't. Yeah, that's how I feel. And it, it definitely, the taste is not there. In, no. 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 So do you think that um, uh, mentioning that, that plant-based food is actually becoming more popular? It is. Uh, and frankly, it's uh, surprising me the degree to which it's becoming popular. Uh, I think Burger King just added another item there of all the fast food chains. They're oh. the one that's most in on, on plant-based food. Um, look for whatever reason, people want to eat plant-based food. Uh, if it does anything to reducing the size of the industrialized beef industry, that's great. Um, it's fine. The, the question that has not been answered though, most plant-based products, you know, with a name on the front, Fred's Burgers or whatever they are, are highly processed. And oh, as yeah. people say, they don't want to eat processed food. They want to eat natural food. That's not what you're getting when, when you buy a, a fake meat of some sort. And secondly, along those lines, there is no scientific analysis that's been done yet that I know of assessing the carbon impact, the environmental impact of making these foods. You know, uh, we know that cows produce methane. Methane's not good for the environment. So if you choose not to eat a cow and to eat a plant, theoretically, in the, in the broader picture of things, you're, you're helping the planet. But no one knows how much um, of the processing involved in making plant-based foods, what the impact of that is um, ecologically. So you know, it, it's right now it's apples and oranges. The assumption on the part of every consumer is that if it's plant-based, it must be better. Science hasn't proved that yet. Now, what about the genetically modified foods? I, I'm not particularly afraid of that, but that's just me and my view of science. I, I, I don't now, I think there is a downside, potential downside when you start messing around with the genetics of food, you end up with stuff like Roundup, uh, which isn't a food, but which kills everything in its sight uh -huh. and has some deleterious effects on the food chain. Um, I, I'm not particularly, um, if they can modify a gene in a plant in a certain way that will help it, great. The problem in my mind is that much of the modification that has been done has been at the expense of flavor. I mean, you get perfectly round tomatoes now because they've been bred to be perfectly round so they can be shipped. They taste like a foot. You know, uh, anytime you see perfect produce, um, I have my doubts. I live in New uh -huh. Jersey. We have New Jersey tomatoes. They are the ugliest, most misshapen things any farmer ever raised. They're also the best tomatoes I've ever had, including the ones I had in Italy. So, you know, um, know. science doesn't necessarily help. I know. When I go shopping, I, I when I see all like the cauliflowers like this, mm -hmm. or the broccoli's all like this, and I say to myself, mm-mm that must be genetically modified because there's no way that every single one of those things can look exactly the same oh, way. But it doesn't have to be genetically modified. It can have been simply bred 
to have those characteristics. Genetic modification says you're going in and playing with it. Breeding is a different issue. Mm-hmm. So there's a difference then. So they, they can actually make things look, you know, all the same when they plant. Yeah. If you, if, if you come up with a particular genetic, um, a breed, if you keep planting to, to accentuate certain characteristics, it's um, you're playing Darwin, I guess. So let me ask you about your book. Please. So, yeah. Uh, do you have a copy of it? I got one right here. Food oh, Americana. Food Americana. So now there's recipes in there. And, and from what I understand, you you uh, interviewed like the the amazing chefs around the world. I, I spoke with any number of, well, mm-hmm. in America. I, I spoke with oh, okay. um, Daniel Boulay, who... Uh, uh, arguably invented the uh, the gourmet hamburger in the United States. I spoke with Cecilia Chang, who was the most important figure in the development of Chinese food in America. She was 100 when I spoke with her. She wow. passed away a year later. Wonderful, just incredible woman. Uh, Chris Bianco, who may be the leading artisanal pizza maker in America. Um, Alice Waters, uh, who... Um, was really the force behind uh, California cuisine and the whole concept of farm to table. Um, I, I spoke with, uh, <laughs> for my bagel and lox chapter, I spoke to Mel Brooks. Now he's <laughs> certainly not a chef, but this man knows his bagels. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. So yeah, I, um, I attempted in every case to get to primary sources with Prime. information like, like the Lender brothers. Um, I spoke to the sons of the gentleman, Daniel Thompson, who invented the automatic bagel making machine. I mean, as I said, my background includes a fair amount of investigative reporting. So I, and I applied those standards to this book. I mean, there's a lot to debunk in the world of food. Uh, a lot of, of legend that has been passed on as if true. You know, if, if you follow the legends, Pretty much everything worth having was was invented at the 1904 World's Fair, which is not the case. Um, and and it's kind of hard sometimes to separate the wheat from the chaff, such as who invented the first hamburger. Um, Louis Lunch in New Haven will tell you they did, but there's no proof. You know, um, there are places that demonstrably were serving them early including Louis Lunch, uh, around or before the turn of the century. But then again, there were purists who will argue that what you get there isn't a hamburger because they serve it on white toast. Oh, really? Not yeah. on a bun? Yeah, yeah. Now, what about, what about the Frankfurter, like Nathan's um, uh, in, in Coney Island? Well, uh, that's not in this book. It's going to be in my next one. But the oh, okay. Nathan's, Nathan's actually um, copied Nathan Handworker was the guy who opened Nathan's. He was working for another restaurateur at Coney Island, a guy who sold hot dogs. I think he sold them for 10 cents each. Nathan's opened up his place and started selling them for five cents each. And thus um, a legend was born. The hot dog, you know, obviously came initially uh, from European sausage. uh, And there are all sorts of stories about how it became the food of the ballpark. Supposedly some guy was selling them on a cold day at the polo grounds in uh, Brooklyn. You'll never prove that. No, no. But I will say Nathan's Franks are really good though. They are. They went through a period of time uh, after the handworker family sold to um a corporation. They went through a period of time where the quality of the franc went down. Um, they're back up to where they ought to be. Um, and, and they're terrific. I mean, see, that's a perfect example in my mind of a perfectly fine fast food. Um, the, the, the franc is high quality. I don't know where they get their buns, but they're fine. The whole thing, let's see, a, ham, a hot dog, 135 calories, bun, it's like a 275-calorie indulgence that's perfectly fine. Yeah, with mustard and sauerkraut. Oh, it's got to have mustard. Come on, yeah, come on. It has, to, it has to have mustard. It has to yeah, have and mustard. sauerkraut, in my opinion. Yes, but you see, have... also, 
how you make a hot dog is, I mean, nobody, one of the reasons it's not in my first book is you don't make hot dogs, you heat them. But the issue is how do you heat them? The fact that Nathan's does it on the grill and gets them kind of crispy is, is really nice. Now you can take that to the extreme. There's a great place in Clifton, New Jersey, Rutt's Hut, that either perfected or invented what's called the ripper. That's where you drop a hot dog into deep fat and you leave it there until it explodes. Literally the sides rip open and then you have a ripper. Now that's damn good. Well, I've never had one of those. Yeah. That's, I've, had a that's... Cor- I've had a corn dog, which was a little weird, but. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, uh, corn dog's a corn dog. Why would you do that to a good hot dog? I, I know, but I had to try it though one day because I said, all right, we just need to well, try that. But, look, yeah. uh, uh, Gray's Papaya sells hot dogs for like, I don't know, are they still a buck and a half, two bucks? That's your basic hot dog. It's great. It's wonderful. A good hot dog. See, People don't realize there are so many different versions of hot dogs. And and in the final analysis, less important than the meat combination is how it's spiced. You know, um, it's that that's that's the key. Yeah. And, and, but but again, as you said, it has to have that mustard and sauerkraut. It does. Unless. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, it does. It does. Yeah, it does. I, when I when I worked um, when there was an East block when the cold war was on the Berlin wall was still up. I worked a fair amount in East Berlin. And once you'd get through checkpoint, Charlie, and they searched your car for bombs and stowaways. The first thing I would do is go to this little sort of hot dog stand under the elevated train, the S-Bahn. And it was a vice first. It was a white sausage, I think veal. And the way they serve those there is it's not in a bun. It's served next to a crusty roll with some mustard on the plate. So it's, you, you take the vice versa and you, you dip it in the mustard. That's one hand. And the other hand, you got the roll. It's a wonderful thing. Wow. I've never seen that one before, but it's great. <laughs> uh huh. So let me, let me ask you something. Uh, do, do you think COVID has changed the way we eat? Uh, it's accelerated a number of negative trends, such as the use of meal services, having stuff delivered so that yes. you, even though you think you're making food from scratch, it's processed. It's um, increased the degree to which we rely on drive throughs and deliveries. Um, it's reduced the size of menus at some places because in bouncing back from COVID, a lot of restaurant employees decided they were sick and tired of the restaurant business and being paid crap and they haven't come back. So there's a labor shortage. So yeah, it's had an impact. It has. Yeah. Cause yeah. I've even noticed with some of the restaurants here, they've cut their menus down significantly. Yeah. Well, there's two reasons for that. Yeah. One is lack of staff. Um, two is uh, they're trimming some of the more expensive items uh, in the face of inflation and such. So Getting back to your book, okay. Um, now, now with uh, I've read that every, after every chapter you have a a recipe. Yes. So the the recipe shows you what to you know tells you what to buy how to cook yeah, it. It's, and- what I did is each chapter includes a recipe from one of the featured places mm-hmm. or items. Now mm-hmm. some of them are very simple. There's a barbecue joint in. Uh, Big, big Bob Gibson's barbecue in Alabama that invented white sauce, um, which is um, basic. Whoa, my God, I've somehow Siri got started, uh, which is basically uh, mayonnaise, uh-huh. vinegar and salt and pepper and maybe lemon juice. I have that recipe in there. I also have some very complicated recipes, um, for example, for uh, uh kind of nouveau Chinese food, among other things. I have a recipe in there um, from an 80-year-old Mexican restaurant in California. Uh, they've, been, they've been making things their way for eight decades. Uh, I featured lox and bagels, so of course I, I have the appropriate lox and eggs recipe. Um, I have a recipe for chicken wings. Um, we, we went to the chicken wing festival in Buffalo, New York. So I, I have a recipe in there for wings and sauce, which my wife and I just adored taste testing. 
Um, I've got a pizza recipe from Tony Gemignani. Uh, yeah, no, there's, there's plenty of, uh, plenty of stuff you can cook after you read the book. But the idea is the chapter is supposed to make you salivate. And then at the end, you can satisfy that need. What is one of your favorite dishes? Oh, well, uh, my death row meal is um, lox bagel and cream cheese from Russ and Daughters on the Lower East Side. Um, my second favorite death row meal would be brisket barbecue from Louis Miller's in Taylor, Texas, brisket. which is mm -hmm. just phenomenal. They do nothing to the meat but salt and pepper. They put it on this smoker that's been there for 60 or 70 years. And using only their knowledge, they move it around to various parts of the heat as needed. And then when they slice it, it's, it's like eating beef-flavored butter. It's unbelievable. And no sauce. Central Texas barbecue. Oh. The, the, no sauce. Beef-based Central Texas barbecue. They'll give you sauce on the side if you want it, but it's not intended to be eaten with sauce. To be with how long does it take them to cook that? Uh, ten hours. Yeah, right. Because I yeah. I know even yeah. in sauce it takes quite many hours. Yeah, no, the brisket. The brisket. I'm sorry. No, eight mm -hmm. hours. The brisket. They started at three a.m. They pull it off at eleven. It's eight hours. Wow, that's that's a long time. But then it's. The taste is, is it's amazing. It's truly yeah. amazing. I mean, I I was there years ago. I, I first put the place on diners, drive-ins, and dives. Um, so I've seen it firsthand at three in the morning as they stoke the fire, and it's it's an amazing experience. It truly is. Wow, it's making me want brisket now. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, there you go. Brisket's a great uh, example of how yeah. so much great food is born. It was food mm -hmm. of the poor, Ju oh. just like Jewish kishka was, Ju uh -huh. just like chicken wings were. Mm -hmm. Some of our greatest dishes are the, the dishes that were affordable to those with the least money. Who had to figure out how to make them good how to make it yeah yeah no yeah we uh yeah we used to eat a lot of brisket at home you know back in my days my mom always made brisket i and make my, a good brisket but my secret is from uh, a friend of mine in oklahoma who used to use this on barbecue which is that i put in a pan onions potatoes carrots salt pepper garlic all of that mm -hmm. but I then fill the pan up to halfway up on the, on the meat. I, I put in crushed tomatoes, obviously, but the, the liquid is Dr. Pepper, which actually has a prune flavor to it and a tremendous acidity. The prune flavor works perfectly with the tomatoes and the acidity helps break down the fibers in the meat. And remember, brisket is one of those low and slow meats because it's a cheap cut. It, it's, you know, it's, it's not a, a, a gender line. It's, it's meat you have to work on to make it to good. On. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's no, no doubt. Uh, and it's funny because here, I'm in California. I actually, a few days ago, looked for brisket and something that used to cost like maybe $18, $20 was now like $50. Yeah, it's become said, a prized cut. It's, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. I've, my go-to lately has become short ribs. Yeah. Well, that'll um, get burgers now. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Uh -huh. I know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's amazing. The prices of meat and everything has gone sky high. It's insane. It's truly yeah. insane. So where, where can my listeners find your amazing book? Well, any place that sells books, you can go online and find it. The place I would send you to first, because in all candor, they keep the metrics that help keep us on high on the list and such is amazon.com you can go to walmart you can go to target you can go to barnes and noble but i would send you first to amazon uh the title again yes, let's see said, the book again yes. killing to pay for columbia is food americana ah how did you get get to that you know i like that um the um the way it looks there's yeah, that coffee was, and that was my that was my publisher as oh, was the title. Yeah, oh, Man really? Mango Publishing um, 
they, they, they know how to do that stuff. And so I just trusted them and said, what do you think? And in fact, to be quite candid, while I've grown into it, I didn't originally like the cover. Um, but, uh, now I love it. So, and on the back, you have a lot of people saying nice things about it. Oh, that's even better. Believe yeah, me. Um, <laughs> George, I, George Stephanopoulos, I knew when I was at ABC, and he gave me a nice blurb. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. What about George, well, George is a mensch. Oh, yeah. yeah well, a lot George of them love to, love to give testimonials. Yeah, but, uh, you know, for someone like George, George whose yeah. credibility is on the line, it was very, yeah. very gratifying yeah. to, to get a blurb. Yeah, that's nice when they do that for you. Oh, I me. forgot. Among the people I talked to, Jerry Greenfield, Ben and Jerry's. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was fascinating. And what did he, what was his contribution? I wanted to know the history. Uh, I have a chapter that's on ice cream. I wanted the history of ice cream through his eyes and uh, and his story and how they, how they came to be. And, um, how did ice cream come to be? Well, ice cream, uh, th there's no definitive story of how this particular frozen dessert was invented. Some people say the Mongols, some people say the Chinese. The best history tells us is that the precursor of what we would recognize as ice cream came out of um, Italy in the 16 or 1700s. I'd have to go back to my own book. Uh, spread across Europe, came from there to the United States. It became quite popular. Um, it was an upper class dish because it was hard to make. And generally, um, people of money had someone make it for them, either hired servants or unfortunately in the South slaves. Um, it was the creation of the um, mechanical ice cream freezer many years later that allowed ice cream to become uh, widespread in the United States. In fact, during World War II, it was considered to be such an important part of morale that there was a naval barge in, uh, in Europe in World War II that went around. It, it was an ice cream factory, basically, and it distributed ice cream to uh, soldiers and sailors. What do you think is the most favorite flavor? Oh, vanilla. Vanilla. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's... You can't get past that. Now, look, there's artisanal ice cream now with all sorts of wonderful flavors. Um, and what makes them artisanal, because uh, they're still going to come through an ice cream freezer, is the care taken in preparing the ingredients. You know, the, there's, uh, um, and now this is embarrassing. I, I'll forget the name of the place, but there's, there's a small chain, six or eight locations um, out of uh, Portland. Why can't I remember? Oh, this is the instant we're done i'll i'll remember their name uh and they are producing the ingredients that go into the ice cream like their own blueberry jams they're if they're making if they're going to put pieces of brownie into the ice cream then they're baking the brownies wow. to a different recipe than a normal brownie because of the way it's going to interact with the ice cream in terms of getting too mushy or too hard um it's that that's what makes ice cream artisanal and there's a new thing now there, there's a whole thing of um and it can't really be called ice cream by by legal definition in the u.s but frozen desserts that are vegan that that are ice cream with no milk and they're using fats from uh, coconut oil, for example, that sort of thing. And um, some of those are very good. Oh, yeah, some of them are real, very yeah, no, really look, good. No, look, ice cream mm -hmm. is a happy thing. Ice, I keep yeah. ice cream in the in the fridge at all, uh, freezer at all times. And at night watching TV, I'll say to my wife, you want a little ice cream? So we'll put a scoop in a bowl. And, you know, I, I don't go for crazy flavors. I mean, right now I have vanilla and coffee in the freezer. Um, that coffee might get replaced by butter pecan or yeah, but um, pecan. Uh -huh. a, a mint chocolate chip, but you know, nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm not personally a fan while I very much respect their ice cream. I, I'm not personally a fan of the Ben and Jerry's here's 3000 mix-ins kind of thing. Yeah, neither am I. I, I like the vanilla butter pecan uh, and the mint chocolate. Oh, pistachio. Good pistachio. pistachio. Yes. Yes. Is a good thing. Uh-huh. That, that we need all the time. <laughs> Damn straight. <laughs> it's our go-to food. 
without and it. We and again, work. you know, you talk uh-huh. about what's good for you or bad for mm-hmm. you. High quality ice cream, which is basically milk, cream, and eggs, mm-hmm. um, or not eggs, depends on the recipe. Um, there's nothing about that that's going to hurt you unless you eat the whole gallon mm-hmm. um, or pint, which is mm-hmm. um, the sale of pints went up dramatically at the beginning of uh, the pandemic. Yeah, that I know. And, and, and it's, it's still up. <laughs> well, it uh, you talk about spirituality. There. <laughs> there are times when you need to sit on the couch with a pint of ice cream. I know. Just to, you know, just to chill a little bit, but. Um, oh, yeah. You know, I mean, but it's it's good, and yeah, you know, that, and every now and then some. I mean, I'll have like some chips or a pretzel, or what we don't have here is is the the pretzels that we used to have back east. The you know, the, the, uh, the big ones you spy on the street. The big yes, the big ones. Yeah, the big pretzels. Huh. Yeah, we I'm, don't have. I'm that. surprised by that. Yeah, yeah. You know, but I haven't looked. Too- I haven't looked into where pretzels come from, although I believe having lived in Germany and having had plenty of pretzels at Oktoberfest, I think they probably came from Germany. Probably. Yeah. But pretzels are good. I love pretzels. That's probably my favorite. Really? Everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Salted pretzel. Okay. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Well, where can they get your book again? <laughs> and, Go and to amazon.com or walmart.com or target.com okay. food america and do you have a, a website um I, I don't i have an instagram for the book oh, um okay. food americana and i have a facebook for the book food americana oh. so oh. look at those send so me a message i'll that. answer yes we i'll put that all on on the on the notes thank and, you uh, well thank you for this um this is the first food show that we've ever had and i appreciate it very much well i I very much appreciate the opportunity so thanks for the invitation and the the terrific chat well thank you and uh thank you to my listeners for listening today and again a very big thank you to david page and i hope uh you heard what you needed to hear so visit me at motivateyourlife.net and please subscribe to this youtube channel the spiritual warrior coach podcast We're also on Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon. Uh, Gee, we're everywhere and international. And for maybe those of you interested in learning energy healing, check out my book on Amazon, The Gentle Energy Touch, The Beginner's Guide to Hands-On Healing. So again, thank you very much for listening and have a beautiful week filled with love and with light. Love, Barbara.